the greatest advantage in business and productivity and engagement for yourself and your employees is being happy. Happier employees, happier bosses drive higher engagement, higher productivity in their organizations, outperform their peers. If you gratitude journal two to three minutes a day, every day, and you think about key meaningful moments in your day that you're thankful for. And after 21 days, what happens is your brain actually creates a background scanning application that just does it in real time. You essentially train your brain to see those moments in real time and appreciate them in real time. And then that makes you a happier person. And it drives all sorts of outsized incomes for your business. Hey, this is Chad Namiro. And I'm Kelly Namiro. Welcome to the Balancing Chaos Podcast. A lifestyle podcast where we will interview guests about wellness, business, and just about everything in between. Our goal is to help you develop a lifestyle that promotes health, wholeness, and success. Through our conversations, we hope to inspire you to live a beautiful, full, and joyful life as you navigate balancing the chaos. We hope you enjoy. All right, everyone, we are ecstatic to bring Henry Shuck on the pod today. Henry has served as the CEO and chairman of ZoomInfo, formerly Discover Org, since founding it in 2007. Henry led ZoomInfo as it became the first tech company to go public during the COVID-19 pandemic. Including the company's acquisition of Zoom Information in 2019, he has overseen 11 acquisitions in total. Prior to founding Zoom Info, Henry was VP of Research and Marketing at iProfile, a sales intelligence firm focused on the IT market. Furthermore, Henry was named to Fortune's 40 Under 40 class of 2020 and is involved in various philanthropic efforts, which we'll discuss later. With that, let's welcome Henry to the pod. Welcome, man. Thank Thanks, you Chad. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. And congrats on uh, the continued success. I think uh, I was looking at the financials before we jumped on and you've continually exceeded uh, expectations for both revenue and EPS. And even before COVID, like every tech company, you know, or most I should say did. And so congrats, man. It, uh, yeah, thank you. It sounds it's, like an incredible uh, journey. It is a really great journey. Not a lot to complain about. I was actually listening to you on another podcast. And one thing that you were talking about was you were talking about motivation and like the idea of waking up even on the days that sound challenging. And Chad was just, you know, referencing continuing to knock it out of the park. And one thing that you said was, you know, I just don't want to fail. Like I will keep trying whatever it takes. I don't care. Like I want to just see myself as successful. Is that a mindset that you were born with? Or do you feel like that was acquired as you kind of went through your you business know, life? That's an interesting question. It's probably, a, it's probably acquired. Um, okay. There's this great Babe Ruth quote that says, uh, it's really hard to beat somebody who never quits. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it is. you just come in every day and you solve the problems that are in front of you. And sometimes those are really big problems and they're really challenging. And sometimes there are small problems that, you know, everything's going swimmingly and you're just kind of like solving little optimization things. Sometimes there's like big fires in front of you. And those, those days are harder to get up and go, but you just get up and make a little bit of incremental improvement every time. I think the resilience around this company being as successful as possible, I think probably comes from the fact that, you know, I founded this company when I was in law school mm -hmm. and lawyers are built to be risk averse and mm -hmm. to avoid like risk at all costs and mitigate risks as often as possible. 
And then at the end of my first year in law school, we started Discover Org, which turned into Zoom Info. And like, uh, I don't want to say ridicule, like, but it's pretty close to ridicule uh, from like all of my law school friends were just like, this is the dumbest thing. It's so stupid. You're an idiot. Like, why wouldn't you just take like the big law jobs that are going to pay $165,000 your first year out? Um, and it never ended. Uh, and it really never ended until like most of those people have asked if they could come work at Zoom Info <laughs> in the, the most recent couple of years. But, you know, when that was happening, it was like, if this doesn't become a success, then like, you know, all of them are right. And it has to become a big enough success that it's not like that everybody understands it as a big success. Mm -hmm. And then when it got to as successful as it, as it is today, you, you know, like anything, you have a group of naysayers and you're just trying to prove them wrong over and over again. And so you're constantly like looking to prove people wrong about what you think is the potential of your company. Yeah. It's like, I, I think that I definitely feel that even with my company, which is so much smaller, but it's like proving to people that you can do it. There's a huge satisfaction. Totally. Yes. Know, the most. Sure. Yeah. Um, can you tell for those of, I, I know, you, you know, Chad, my husband is in tech. Um, and so a lot of our listeners do know what zoom info is, but for those of them who don't, can you tell us a little bit like bite-sized what zoom info does? I was showing her the tool before we got on. So I'm getting <laughs> yeah. her up to speed. So the basics of it are like the, the branded version of it is zoom info is a go-to-market platform that helps sellers identify their next best customers, connect with them, um, and then build automated workflow around that motion. What that really means is at the core of what ZoomInfo does is it, it uh, profiles 220 million business professionals and 110 million businesses around the globe. And so if you sell to other businesses, we have information on all those businesses, who the decision makers are, how to get a hold of them, what their phone number and email address are. We have information on what technologies the companies use, how big they are, how many locations they have. Uh, are they growing? Are they shrinking? Have they hired a new CEO or CMO? And all of these little signals that tell you when you should be engaging with the company and then the data you need to actually engage with them. So if you're a business to business seller in any industry, and we work with everything from like literally people who sell plants to offices to the Fortune 10, uh, if you sell to other businesses, it's a tool that's really hard to live without. Yeah, sounds like it for sure. Yeah, I use it every day. So I think most people know, but I'm a VP of sales. And so when my team is, is etching out which accounts they're going after, or they're figuring out how to break into an account via contacts, et cetera, zoom info is like the de facto tool. It also helps, uh, like, like Henry said, tell you when they got funding, yep. just typically when they go and potentially buy software, really important insights for us. So I've worked at three companies and it's used by all three. So you've, you've done awesome. a great job at uh, Thank you, Chad. I getting some traction here. Yeah. yeah. Before we get more into Zoom info, tell us about uh, your upbringing. We uh, we listened to a few pods and we we know you personally. And um, you know your mom, I believe, was an immigrant, right? Yep. My mom immigrated here from Iran in the seventies, um, and and then raised us essentially on her own. She worked three jobs as a nurse, and a wow. lot of those and three jobs really meant like kind of sixteen hours a day. Uh, wow. every day, like an eight hour day was like, a, 
a day off. That would be like her day off. Um, and a lot of, most of those shifts at night. And so there was always like either my grandma or we had a babysitter who would come at night. She'd be there in the morning to take us and drop us off at school. She'd like clean the house, sleep for a couple hours, go back to work. Um, so she had this incredible work ethic, which is really interesting because was it, it becomes really interesting because when you have a lot of success or when I started making more money than my mom, um, you start like feeling bad about the amount of time you're putting in because you're like, man, I'm making more money than my mom. I'm doing it from behind a desk and I'm working, you know, 10 hours a day. My mom yeah. was working 16 hours a day most days. Um, so you get a little bit of guilt for how much work ethic she had, uh, but raised us, uh, saved money, bought a house, um, just made sure that we knew that she re that she really wanted us to go to college. That was like the thing. It didn't matter which college, but she wanted us to be educated or be more educated than than she was. Um, yeah. So me and my sister shared a room for a, for till we were I was ten. Um, then she was able to, uh, secure enough money to buy a, a small condo in a suburb of Los Angeles. And I went off to college. She gave me, she had been saving money in a life insurance fund where like you could put money in a life insurance fund that had like surrender value at some point. So when I went to college, she gave me $5,000 and she was like, yeah, this is your college fund. I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I'm going to have to fill in the blanks. <laughs> um, so I worked throughout college, uh, worked throughout college. And um, so, yeah, that was how I was raised. Um, so it's obviously she was a really hard worker, like clearly working yeah, three yeah. jobs, 16 hour days that I'm guessing, I think that there's a lot of people out there these days, and I'm probably going to get, you know, destroyed for saying this, but that think that, you know, the American dream isn't possible anymore. And that it's not, you're, we're not like hard work isn't going to get you anywhere. And i do not believe that at all. I think yep. that you are a true testament to that. So do you feel like your mom's work ethic informed your work ethic and totally like, was helped you like to get where you are today? Yeah, I think at some point, I, you know, I think believing in the American dream is a lot harder today than it was when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when we were growing up, I believed that I could do anything that I wanted to do. All I had to do was outwork the people around me. And as long as I always did that, I would have more and more opportunity to achieve whatever I wanted. I really believed that. And so when it was like in college, I was just like, I'm going to work harder than everybody in law school is like, I'm going to work harder than everybody. Yeah. That's the edge that I have. Like, you can't take that away from me. And I'm never going to look back at a situation and go like, oh, I wonder if I could have been more successful there if I just worked a little bit harder. Like, I'm just going to take that off the table. And there could be a lot of other reasons. I didn't make the right decisions or whatever it is, but it'll never be because I didn't work hard enough. Like, that's an excuse that, uh, that I'll never have. But yeah, look, I think it's hard to look at me growing up, um, you know, with next to nothing and then the success that we've had at Zoom Info and that I've had personally and not believe in the American dream today. Um, so yeah, I think like regardless of the, you know, how much more difficult it may seem, I still really believe that like hard work can get you a really long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
We, we've certainly noticed a correlation just in our own lives and, and with guests on this pod between those that are immigrants themselves or themselves or uh, immigrants as parents. There just seems to be a very direct correlation, oftentimes with hard work and success there. Totally. I mean, no one who's successful is going to come on here and go like, you know what, actually, it's pretty easy. And yeah, like, I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't have to work very hard. It just was like right place, right time constantly. And things just like materialized for me. That's just like not really, there are, might be a few of those out there, but there aren't a lot. Like everyone who's had success has felt the hard work necessary to achieve that success. Yeah. Yeah. So you thought that you, I'm guessing when you went to law school, thought that you wanted to be a lawyer. And so you, when you were in college, did you, you thought you wanted to be a lawyer and then did things change? And you're like, Oh, I want to be an entrepreneur now. Yeah. Actually in college, I thought I was going to be a hotel manager. That's why I went to UNLV. Oh, um, and I worked at the MGM grand, uh, for like four years and I didn't love it. Okay. Um, and decided, okay, hotel management's not for me. Because I was working, because I needed a job, the, the way this actually unfolded was after my freshman year in college, I had no money. The $5,000 was gone yeah. um, and I needed a job. So I applied all over Las Vegas, applied at the MGM. They didn't call me back fast enough, uh, banks everywhere. And there was this random job on the UNLV job board for some data company. And I didn't know what it did, but I showed up, paid 12 bucks an hour. There was just an owner and me. Um, and he was replacing this woman who was leaving, who basically told me like, don't take the job. It's a terrible place to work, <laughs> <laughs> but I needed the money. I needed to pay rent in the summer. So I took this job. Um, and it turned out that company was like a very early entrant into the software as a service space. It was annual recurring revenue. There was an online database. It was selling information on the information technology departments of large companies to salespeople who sold to those companies. And it started adding contact data in. And it was like this incredible experience where I got to sit across from the CEO. We grew the company from like $300,000 a year in revenue to 5 million a year in revenue in kind of like four years. Um, but we did that without like any infrastructure around the business. And so by the time I was like done with college, the business was doing 5 million in revenue and like $4.7 million in profit. And it was like, let's build a company around this. And the owner wasn't really interested in actually building a company around it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to law school because I viewed the legal, I, I viewed being a lawyer as something, uh, to be like really proud of. It had like a uh, respect that came with it mm -hmm. that you didn't get in other uh, professions. And before I left, uh, so this is 2005, I had started this like little nightclubs promotions company like by accident. And it had 35 employees and contracts with a number of casinos. And I hated it. <laughs> and I was like getting like my friend to run it and this guy who worked for the business was like, why are you going to law school? And I was like, because I want to be a lawyer because it has like a professional reputation that you don't get in other places. And he was like, Henry, you are business. I don't know why you're running away from it, but everything you do, everything you think is about business. So you're going to end up being back in business, but whatever, go to law school. And like, I never forgot that because he was totally right. Yeah. Um, and so after my first year, we started, we started Zoom Info to really like compete in that same space. 
so one that thing, was oh. high profile, right? That was high profile, yeah. I had heard a story, I think it was on another podcast, that he was convincing you, essentially, to start this business, right? You were like, well, I don't know if you're serious or not. I don't know if I'm serious. Let's let's give it three weeks or what have you. Oh, this is like uh, my the guy that I found, it, found yeah. Zoom Info with, yeah. a guy named Kirk Brown, was convincing me. He came to me and said, hey, let's start this company that's like mm-hmm. iProfile but doesn't directly compete. Mm-hmm. And I was in... And, I didn't know how serious he was. And then I was in my last like two weeks of finals in law school. So I was like, Hey, come back to me in a couple of weeks. I assume you're going to forget about this harebrained (laughs) idea that you have. And in two weeks, it won't feel that important to you anymore. But he called me two weeks later and was like, Hey, I still want to do this. Um, And I was like, okay, well, if you really want to do this, move to quick, quit your job and move to Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, there's no way, like, here's another like major roadblock. And he did quit his job and he moved to Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to quit my job. I was working at a law firm I'm going to move all my schedules, move my, my school schedule in my second and third year so that I can work in the morning and go to school at night. And so I was going to, I was working from 7am to three. And then I was going to law school from 3.30 to like 10 at night. I just took whatever classes there were. It didn't matter. Like social science in the law, medical malpractice in the law. Like (laughs) if it was, if it fit a nighttime course, that's what I took to get through law school. And then reading legal texts from midnight on. (laughs) And then reading legal texts. I mean, I took like pretty easy classes because of that. So the last two, the first year in law school is especially difficult the last two years are much less difficult. So they were that was the right time to start a company. One thing that our mutual friend Ashley told me was that like when you first started the company and you, you'll have to tell me if this is true or not, is that you would actually like pick up the phone and call your friends and stuff and say, hey, like, can you give me this VP's information? Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I used like my, I had a friend who worked at the Four Seasons. He gave me the full org chart. <laughs> I had Chris Fiumaro used to send me like the org charts of the different places he worked. And I'd be like, yeah, I put it right into the platform and I'd use those as samples. See, that uh, is motivation and drive right there. Scrapers back then you had to do it manual. Yeah. You had to do a manual back then. We were calling into places and like collecting some information online and calling into companies. And if a friend was willing to tell me what their whole org chart looked like at their company, that was like a big win for us. <laughs> so tell us more about the early zoom info days i mean obviously it was scrappy like that like you were doing things you know to actually like really get your business together that like other people like you said weren't willing to do can you can you give us more insight into that yeah so we built this business in a really bootstrapped way and so we didn't have any outside funding for the first uh for the first seven years of running the company and yeah. so i put twenty five thousand dollars on my credit card Kirk put $25,000 on his credit card. That was our funding. And so we knew that when that ran out, like that was it. If you didn't have money coming in the door before that, there was going to be no more business to have. And so we went out to market kind of six months after we started the company. We had a platform. We were paying sort of third-party contractors to build it for us. We were adding data ourselves during the day, building a marketing list of people to sell to at night. Um, and then we went out kind of like six months after sold our first deal to a publicly traded staffing company. It was a $14,500 annual subscription. And it was a big enough company that you went like, okay, like if we could sell to these guys, then there are a lot of people that we can sell to out there. Cause if this big 
publicly traded staffing company loves what we do, is willing to spend money on it, then you know there are a lot of companies downstream from there who are going to want it too. Um, so we just continue to build a we, we every check we got we like put it all back into the business until 2010. I was making two grand a month. That was my take home salary. So my friends all went to big law making 200 grand a year, and I was taking down two thousand dollars a month um, and putting everything else back into the business to sort of grow it. And then, uh, and then it, the business kind of took off. We did $300,000 our first year, $800,000 our second year, wow. $1.7 million the third year, $5.5 million the fourth year, then $15 million, then $25 million. The seventh year, we did about $35 million in sales. That was the first year we brought in uh, a private equity firm, came in and funded, uh, funded the business, bought about 50, 50, a little bit more than 50% of the business in 2014. And that was great because a lot of that money, most of that money went to me and Kirk to buy the business and put some money on the balance sheet, but it was really sort of their way of buying the company. And it was like this great sort of financial victory because you went like, okay, amazing. I'm not going to ever have to worry about money again, but I, but, but you didn't have any professional validation. You had a lot of like personal financial validation but it didn't like scratch the itch of, hey, I've built something that's unique and remarkable and all and, and long lasting. Um, but it was a great financial outcome and it allowed us to take more risks in the business when it's just like your money in the company, every decision you make is like tied directly to your, uh, to your personal net worth and yeah. you don't make the best decisions when it's like that. And so having a, a third party come in sort of that said, hey, we believe in you. We believe you can grow this business more and we want to make it easier for you to make the right decisions for the business. You really saw an inflection happen in the company. Hey fam, if you are listening here, then you may be someone who deals with chronic overwhelm, bloating, anxiety, and weight you can't lose, maybe hair loss or skin conditions. If one of those things rings true for you, the Wellness by Kelly Health and Hormones course is available to help you get to the root cause and solve the issue in a way that's sustainable and gives you your lifestyle with lasting results. No more diets or quick fixes, but real health and vitality for the long run. My course runs through everything from what labs to test for to what protocols to implement given what's off in your blood work. We cover a variety of hormonal imbalances and how to heal them, plus the mindset work that you'll have to do to change your habits. If you're ready for an environment where you can learn the tools and truly heal to feel your best, most aligned, light, confident version of you, then this course is for you. If you're feeling called to join the WBK Health and Hormones course, head to the link in the show notes to learn more where you'll get my membership included with your purchase. One thing that uh, I definitely agree with you on that I heard you mention probably on another podcast, but was there's a benefit of being bootstrapped, especially in terms of you are forced to learn like almost every area of the business. You are yep. forced to know the product well. You're forced to be involved in CS, customer success, sales, like best founders. And it sounds like this is definitely the type of founder you are, are involved in sales either way, like no matter how big totally. you are. Yes. Um, like I'm part of a company that's raised 300 million in 18 months. Like wow, amazing. But realistically, there are downsides to raising that much money. It can 
force unnatural growth. It can separate yes. the business. You can scale too fast. So tell us about what advantages you saw from, you know, essentially bootstrapping it for so many years before taking funding. Yeah. Like first I do, I've done every job at zoom info. The only thing I haven't done is code a line, put a line of code into production. Yeah, I don't do that I, either. I, <laughs> I got to figure out a way to make that happen. It's the only thing I haven't done. So I've been accounts receivable, accounts payable. I've been the lawyer. I've been the CFO. I've done sales. <laughs> I did product for a long time. I was in the regular lead routing on sales for the first six years of the company. And so I was like in front of customers constantly. I've done account management. So you know every part of the organization really well. You know what really good looks like in every part of the organization because you did it. And like, if you didn't do it, in a best in class way, nobody else is gonna do it like particularly better than you. Um, so you have real familiarity with the business, but then you also do everything efficiently. When you're bootstrapped, you're looking to run the most efficient company you possibly can. And a lot of times it's like life and death in the business if you don't. And so today, if you look at companies, I saw there's a guy named Nick, uh, Nick Mita, he's the CEO of Gainsight. Uh, which is a fast-growing software company. He posted the other day, he goes, if you look at all of the software companies today that have, uh, that have real free cash flow, that are growing and growing profitably, they all started from a bootstrapped position. Yeah. Atlassian, ZoomInfo, I can't remember the other ones that he mentioned. But he goes, it's kind of like learning a sport. If you do it when you're young, you know it for your life. You can become really good when you learn a sport when you're young. When you try to learn it when you're older, it's way more difficult. And so these companies that get a whole bunch of funding and then they run the business, by the way, this is the way they're told to run the business. Um, they're said, they, they, you're told like, go run the business to burn X. Yeah, growth at and all so costs. Growth at all costs. And when you do that, it's really hard when you come into a moment that says like, hey, it's not growth at all costs anymore. Now you got to, be efficient and unit economics matter and you need to have bring down the uh, customer acquisition cost. It's a lot more difficult to back into that than it is to grow up with that. It's like learning a sport when you're young. So I do think the whole organization benefits from the fact today that the, the company's DNA is to grow and grow efficiently um, and not to grow at all costs. And we've had our moments, right? When we went public in 2020, 2021, between 2020 and the end of 2021, nobody talked to us about efficiency. Nobody talked to us about profitability. Of course. <laughs> they only talked to us about growth. And so I was like, in that moment, we brought margins down to drive growth up. And that was the right decision because the, the market didn't really care about efficiency. And then all of a sudden you turn the corner in 2021, what everybody wanted to talk about was efficiency and profitability and what's your path to profitability. And we were just in such a better position to have those conversations. We're like, okay, well, we're gonna increase free cash flow. We're gonna increase margin. Not that we don't have any margin. And so, uh, so I think the company's DNA really is served well by the fact that we're bootstrapped, especially over the next like few years where people are gonna care about profitability. They're gonna care about efficiency. The first 10, 15, 12 years, 13 years of running Zoom Info, uh, I always had to make excuses for the fact that the business was profitable. Well, why is the business profitable? Well, I, I thought that's what a business is. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to want. You must right, I thought you're right. 
supposed to generate profit. Well, why don't you take profits down or why don't you lose money and grow faster? Like that was what I was responding to constantly. And so if you just sort of hang in there long enough, I think with anything, uh, if you just kind of hang in there long enough, there's a good outcome to be had on these things. Let's call it for what it is. A lot of SaaS companies, I'd probably guess the majority, public or private, are unprofitable, at least in their yep. first like five, 10 years. So yep. that's an incredible testament. Um, Maybe longer. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, different conversation, but I think there's a, a reckoning in the next uh, nine yeah, or so months. Yeah, you're already seeing it for sure. But another big one is headcount. And I think that's a big one because you yourself have operated in all the different areas of the business. And so you really know where headcount is needed and where it's not needed. And I think that's another pitfall is you get all this cash and you're, you're deploying all of it because you kind of have to, and you're hiring so many heads and so many mid-level managers. And there's just so many downstream effects, I think, to yep. managing that org. It becomes a lot less flat. There tends to be a lot of bloat and of course cost. And so um, maybe with, the, e yeah, with every hire, you just start asking the question, like, what is this getting me? Exactly. Like if I add another layer of management here, what do I get? Do I get more software? Yeah. Do I get better software? What are the metrics you're going to tell me that this investment actually turned into something? Because if we're just adding heads because we think that's going to help and we have no like actual hypothesis of like where and how and when will we know and will we know, then you just end up consistently adding heads. So I think the difference when you come from a bootstrap background is for every head that you're adding, you're trying, you're asking the question, like, what do I get out of it? How am I going to see that? And like, what metric are we going to track to show me that I'm, I'm getting something out of it? So yeah. a couple of years ago in our product organization, everybody went like, hey, listen, the number of product managers we have in relation to the number of engineers we have is way off. Like you need to add, you need to make a significant investment behind the product organization. I was like, okay, well, what do I get? Like, what, how am I going to see this investment turn into value? And so they have to go back and go like, well, here's what you would see. Like product uh, delivery is going to increase. Efficiency of the engineering team is going to increase. We're going to have less rollbacks. The quality of the product is going to go up. I was like, okay, well, let's let, I, I'm willing to let you make a small investment to show me that set up the metrics, show me that, and then we can make a bigger investment in the future when you're able to show me that the metrics are going in the right place to, to show me a return on that investment. Um, and so you just think of everything like, what money's going in, what return am I getting out? And you just don't let anything get past you unless a good answer to that exists. So speaking of headcount, like and adding people to your team, you've, you've grown your team to what, 3,000 plus? Yeah, more than 3,000, yeah. So in doing so, you have to also be really mindful. Uh, one thing that my my dad has built his business on, and he's told me so much, is like of the culture and the culture yeah. that you're, cre you're creating within the business. Are there any things that you think of when you think of Zoom Info and like the culture that you want to create and how you want people to feel when they come to work? Yeah, like I want people at Zoom Info to feel like this is a place that they can grow, that they can grow their careers, that there's a lot of career mobility here. In fact, at Zoom Info, there's two and a half times the career mobility than our software peers. And so that's a real thing. You can move up, you can take on new challenges. Mm -hmm. I want them to feel like this is a place where hard work is rewarded, mm -hmm. where the people who work hard and commit themselves to the company get the most out of the company. Um, I want them to feel like this is a place that moves fast. We believe in quick wins. 
Um, when you come into a new role, especially in the leadership, in leadership, what I see a lot of people want to do is come in, spend three months analyzing everything, then create like the perfect structure for the organization and then go try to get that. And it's like, no, like we're hiring you because we know there are numerous easy problems to fix in the organization. I want you to get here, take a look at it for four weeks and then start getting the quick wins. Like 80% of the work is the easy stuff that you should be able to recognize right away. Go get me that stuff. And then we can work on the 20% later. And so, you know, I want to be clear that with my leadership, like I'm looking for wins. I'm looking for quick wins. You need to put something on the scoreboard to show that you're like capable of doing a lot here. Um, and I want to move fast. And I think like people feel that when they come here, they feel the opportunity to move. They feel the desire for wins across the organization. Um, and they feel like this is a place where hard work really uh, can really drive your career. So with that growth mindset, like having people feel like they have the capacity to growth, have a lot of your employees been with you for an extended period? Yeah, of time? totally. Yes. Um, and they all made a whole bunch of money in the IPO and they're <laughs> stuck around. They're happy so uh, there is, yeah, like my head of sales was, has been with me for 11 years. Our chief operating nice. officer has been with me for seven years. Wow. Um, we have a bunch of leadership across, or my CTO's uh, been at Zoom Info for seven years. My chief product officer has been at Zoom Info for seven years. Wow. So people like really do fall in love with this place yeah. and stay. And a lot of the team's been with me for a long time. Now, they're, they're not as close to me as they were, right? Because like when you're a small company, your frontline sellers were who reported to me. Yeah. And now a lot of them are just, they're still frontline sellers or maybe they're managers in sales or VPs in sales. That's like a few layers below, below who reports to me, but they're still here. And they, they like, they love the opportunity here. They love the company. They know how to sell the products. They understand the culture. And so they found places to be really successful. That's like what I really want to see today. Cause you know, back in the day, what was hard was as the business was growing and the people who started on the front lines with you, they, by definition, wanted to also move up. So if you added more people, you the best nature. salesperson, they wanted to be the manager, then they wanted to be the director, then they wanted to be the VP. And that doesn't work all the time. Mm -hmm. And so today, what I get a lot of um, fulfillment out of is some of those people who are like, oh, how, how do I move? How do I move? How do I move? They're managing like really important parts of the business, but they're smaller and they're very happy doing it. They love doing it. They can see the impact that they're having in there. They've stopped chasing a title and have gotten like really comfortable with the fact that they can add a lot of value to the business, make a great living um, and be really happy in a role that, that doesn't like chase something that maybe is not just the right fit for them. Yeah. Um, and people, like when you grow a business, you're growing it with young people because you're telling people to take big risks and the people who are most likely to be take big risks are younger people. And so when you start a company, probably in the top three of the things you need to be really good at is developing people yeah. because you're not gonna be able to go out and hire the chief revenue officer at Salesforce or the guy who ran the Americas for Shopify. You're going to hire people who've never really done it before. 
and you see some promise in them, you see that work ethic, you see their like desire to grow and you have to sort of take raw talent and turn it into like really great executive talent along the way. Like that's your primary job. Can you take unex inexperienced people and turn them into like world-class uh, practitioners? And you have to do that if you're a startup because you just can't go get great people. It's about, it's about the product as much as it is about managing people. Would you say that? I think the product makes things a lot easier. If you yeah. have a great product, then oh, yeah. you're able to grow Quicker. even with really inexperienced people. If yeah. you have a really complicated product that's like number two in the space, that's really hard to do with people who are not like really great yeah. um, or who haven't become really great. So if you have a really great product with really great product market fit, it makes everything like way easier. Yeah. And just to your point on retention, just so listeners are aware, it's very challenging in SaaS. There's a lot yep. of money. There's a lot of equity. Yep. There is always a next best thing. Um, and it's a very well-paid industry. And so totally. that's impressive. And yeah, I think one of the hardest things that I do in my day job that I witness is uh, figuring out where people are best placed because your best seller honestly, oftentimes is a terrible manager and vice totally. versa. Great managers oftentimes are, are bad sellers. And that's looking at it from my lens, of course. But uh, I remember a conversation I had with someone years ago and I was uh, just kind of walking through. He was basically wanted a management position. And I, he was walking through why. And I'm like, these aren't good reasons. It's just yeah. the human condition telling you that totally. that's what you want because that's the next step. And yeah, juggling all that uh, is challenging. Yeah, and I think like when people you know, you can make $300,000, $400,000 a year being an individual contributor in the account executive level. You don't take any stress home with you. You do your job, you go home, you're good at it. You can have weekends, you can take four or five weeks off a year and just like do a good job at your job and be like pretty carefree. And like, when you realize that is a life you can have, then you can just kind of get comfortable being great at that. And it's a great life. You're not going to like want for a lot. You're making really good money. You probably have a vacation home. You have a nice car. Like you're not like really worrying about that much. The problem is in SaaS, everybody believes the grass is greener somewhere else. Sure. And recruiters are great salespeople. Yeah. And they tell you like, come here, it's the best place, da da da. <laughs> oh, you don't like that about your job? Well, we don't have that problem here at our new company. The truth is like every company's got its warts. So you're gonna trade like some little thing that you don't like about your company, probably for like five, six, seven, eight things at the other company <laughs> that you just didn't realize you weren't yeah. gonna like to. Yeah. Um, so really just like, being clear about what's important to you and are you getting those things and then letting the rest of the stuff like just be noise that you don't hear is like so valuable. Yeah. And here's a thousand shares. Well, how many shares are there outstanding? Oh, we can't tell you that. Yeah, yeah, totally. The <laughs> games you play with shares, like uh, I heard this guy go, hey, we're giving you this number of shares and when we're worth $200 billion, they're going to be worth $2 million. It's like, <laughs> they're 
three software companies in the world that have ever found their way to being worth $200 billion. And it took like 20 plus years for them to get there. And the likelihood that this company just like selling you on a $200 billion vision is going to be one of those is like, it, it, it doesn't compute, but fine. Like fine. <laughs> so true, man. Uh, but but would you agree that you have a generally flat organization or as flat as it can be at, at 3,000 people? Because I've heard you talk about getting on sales calls and I, I mentioned it prior, but I love that. And that's where I think, here's where I think it can go wrong with SaaS companies, especially is when there's too much attachment between the E-team, the executive team, the product team, and then call it the on the ground team, sellers, customers. Yep. There's so, just but basically of, by flat, tell our listeners what you mean. You mean like where like there's somebody like, from the executive level is doing things with the sales. There's like right? as least amount of hierarchy as there reasonably can be. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if we're more flat or less flat than a lot of other companies. What I do know is that the executives, every executive that I have can do the job of the frontline and often does. And so to be really successful as the senior VP of sales here, you also have to be able to run a sales process on your own. Mm -hmm. To be really great at account management, you also have to be a really great account manager and be able to take any number of customer calls on your own as well. Like last, the last two weeks, I've been traveling meeting customers. And I was at a board meeting in Chicago the other day, and one of the board members was telling the, uh, the management there, he goes, do you think Henry needs to go meet with these $300,000 a year customers? No, he doesn't. But what does it do for the company? It models great behavior. It tells everybody that every customer matters. And do you know how much he's learning in a meeting with a customer that no one else in the organization gets an opportunity to hear and exactly. feel and understand? When Ashley started uh, her company, she asked me for advice. I go, look, the number one advice I can tell you is go sell the product. Because when you're standing in front of somebody and you're pitching the product that you've built and they tell you it sucks or that their other competitor does it better or whatever, you know, we're not going to buy it. It's too expensive. Like the feedback you get in a sales motion, I think is the most valuable feedback you can get because you're asking people to put money into your product and they're going to tell you exactly what they don't like about it. Um, and then that informs a tremendous amount of decisions that you're going to make around product roadmap, around messaging for your products and services, around pricing and packaging and what works in the market. And you just don't get that if you're, in, if you're not in front of customers. You just got to be in front of customers. I think that that's awesome that you look at it that way. Because I think that people can get to a point in their career where they're like, I've made it. I'm done. Like, I'm over it. But like, I think that when you have that you know, commitment. And that comes from like, we've talked about in the beginning, like bootstrapping it yourself. I think that like, it's almost like an, another child, like you've grown and developed it for so long. There's this yep. like, deep love for it. So I think that that's awesome. Um, it's the best path of information too, because yeah, totally. you need to be acutely aware of what competitors are doing, what they're yep. saying, where you're losing, where you're winning. One of the most impactful calls in recent memory that I had was I brought on our, our CEO and our our um, CTO to a postmortem call. So it was a deal we lost and they were just talking about why they chose whoever it was versus us. I mean, I couldn't imagine not them not having that data. Like it, it reshaped to an extent our, our product roadmap and oh. uh, so key. So I think that that like so many people can take that away too. Like our listeners can take that away and say, okay, if I, 
you know, have a business or I'm starting a business, like it's really great advice from you um, at, to say like, okay, this is like what you told Ashley, like go sell your product. Like that, go get sell in your front product. of the customers. Get too big for uh, riches. Um, yeah, you know what's interesting is every once in a while, I think of like my interaction with something, some with some of our customers as though I'm like a butcher in the town. Yeah. And I have a customer who's been with me like forever. Like we got on this call, Chad, you're like, hey, I've used Zoom Info at all three of the companies that I've that I've uh, been at over the last decade or whatever it's been. And it's like, you've been my customer for 10 years. You know, that's a long time to be my like loyal customer. And if if I ran a butcher shop in your backyard, you would be like, I would know your name when you came in, like we would know each other. And in software, you get so disconnected from that. You're like a number on a paper. Like I met a customer the other day. They've been customers for seven years. They spent $300,000 a year. It's a $2.1 million customer over that period of time. And it's like, man, you've been loyal. You've been my customer. You've been a partner of mine. Like I should come in there like hugging you. But in <laughs> software, it feels like, it's so not personal anymore. It's like, yeah, you bought my stuff. I, yeah, I, you know, you bought my stuff. That's how it feels. Not <laughs> like you have a relationship with a loyal customer. I think that gets missed a lot in this in this universe. Couldn't agree more. So you took your company public in one of the craziest times in history, as we mentioned in the intro. Uh, wh what was that like? I know, like when my dad took his company public, it was a lot on him, not during COVID. So what was that yeah. like for sure? And, and why, maybe outside of returning capital, of course, to employees and investors, like what made you think it was it was the right, right time? time? You know, return on capital was a big part, uh, and the public markets at the time. Uh, and actually, this is a little different today than it was then, but the public markets valued software companies with a premium versus the private markets. Yeah. And so there was a real uh, return on capital motivation. We also were a unique company. We're growing and we were profitable. And so we thought we fit uniquely in the public market. We... Um, we did a in-person roadshow where we met a bunch of investors and then COVID happened and we took a step back and went like, okay, great. Let's like focus on the business, make sure we're in a good place to come back out. And then one of our board members in like a meeting in May was like, well, why don't we just be the first one out? Why don't we be the first company to go public? What, what are the downsides to that? You ask a group of investment bankers, what are the downsides <laughs> <laughs> being the first one to go IPO? And nobody is telling you like, it's a bad idea. They're just like, yeah, okay, let's figure out how to do that. And so we went public June 4th of 2020. It was the first IPO of the pandemic. Um, it really opened the markets. People realized like, okay, I can IPO from home. I can do it over Zoom. We're the first ones outside of Zoom video. We're the first ones to do a fully virtual roadshow, meet all of our investors virtually. And then, you know, I did it in my den in Vancouver, Washington, which was like super interesting. I never got to go ring the bell yeah. and sign my name and get confetti dropped on me, but <laughs> It was great because I was in my house. I got to sleep in my bed the nights during the th during the road show. I got to see Jessica and my daughter Grace every night. So that was really awesome. Um, I think that like for my mom, when my dad was doing the first IPO, like that was, he was gone for like, like a month at a time. Yeah, you just like, disappear. Yeah, so, so that's, yeah. like that's yeah. awesome that you could just go see them. And totally, Jessica out. would open up the pool in the <laughs> afternoon so I get finished with a long day and I could go swimming and like had a life. Otherwise you're just like 
in a random city Hotel. with a random investment banker, like going to some random dinner. I told the investment bankers before, I was like, hey, I'm not doing the dinners. They're like, no, you have to do the dinners. Like, I'm not doing the dinners. I don't, have, I don't get anything from them. They just like take up three more hours of my night. Yeah. And so being able to do it virtually took that objection off the table, but it was great. It gave us a ton of, uh, you know, the thing that I was missing in the first transaction with private equity was the professional validation. And what you got when the company IPO'd was a lot of professional validation. It's really hard to tell you, you didn't build an amazing company when you IPO it, take it to the public markets, have investors shake it down for all of its fault and still put meaningful money behind it. That was like the first moment where I really felt like professionally I had accomplished something real. And, you know, look, we're at that point, $400 million business with 1,300 employees. And it was legitimately the first time I felt like real professional validation. Did you uh, pause and take a moment and celebrate? You know, we celebrated that night. I did pause and take a moment that night. But, you know, the next day, you're just like right back at grind. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. What was the uh, exit valuation? For, for the uh, listeners? When, so when we IPO'd, we IPO'd at $21 a share, which would have put the company around, call it $10 billion, uh, around $10 billion. And then that, that day it went up to 40, which would have put it at about $15 billion. Um, since then it's been close to 30, back down to 15. It sort of hovers around $20 billion, a $20 billion market cap. Wow. Yeah. And who underwrote the uh, IPO? So JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. Amazing, man. Congratulations. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, nothing to complain about there. So with COVID, was there a lot of change in your business too? Like, were you doing a lot of Zoom calls? Like where people, where people didn't go into the office obviously as much anymore and all that? And has that changed since people have been going back or what do so, you see yeah, what's your, like what's your work from home policy that's a yeah one <laughs> so our work from home policy is open right now so the offices are all open but there's no mandated come back in i would love to bring people back into the office at least like probably no more than one time a week mm-hmm. right now um, I think they miss out on learning opportunities, collaboration opportunities, totally. opportunities to talk to their, their managers and their colleagues. You do miss out on all of that. Now, obviously what COVID proved is you can do your job from anywhere. You yeah. don't have to be in the office. Like you don't need, there's nothing special about this building that enables you to do your job. But there are things that you miss out on when you're not in this building, when you're not with your colleagues, when you're not with your managers. And I think like you need a day a week to recreate that, get you the benefit of it um, and allow you to go back to the, wherever you want to go to do the rest of your job. My sense is it kind of sucks to work from home every single day, like to have no change of scenery, to have no interaction with other people who are your colleagues. Like these people made up your social fabric before COVID. They're your friends. They came to your weddings. They were there when your kids were born. And like, now you're just going to like have that relationship over Zoom. It's unrealistic. Um, And you're not making friends in other places. You know, you're not like now on the kickball team at the local YMCA (laughs) meeting other parents. You do need social interaction. It turns out the people you work with share a lot of the same things that you do. They're struggling with the same things. They're around your same age. They have kids the same age. So there is like social connectivity also that you miss out on that I think is really undervalued. 
Um, I think working from home in general is a valuable thing. I think if you, it's like everything, too much of something is never good. And this is one of those things where if you do too much of work from home, you miss out on a whole bunch of other positive things. I believe in a hybrid approach, which it sounds like you have option to go to the office, which people will take. And then, you know, reality is people got accustomed to not having to commute and, you know, saving money on all kinds of different things. And that that's important. And that means something to a lot of families, but pre COVID everyone's like, Oh, you work from home. Cause I've been remote for years and years. And like, that's so cool. And I wish I could do that. I'm like, it's not all it's chalked up to be like, yeah the grass is not always uh, greener. There is a massive benefit. And I, I dearly miss being in an office, I'd say two days a week. Yep. That's what would yep. work for me. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And I think it's important to think about it from the perspective of the organization too. Like, I think that the organization really benefits when people, like you said, are there like where they can collaborate and be creative Absolutely. and have a, have a moment together. So Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's great. So what's, what's next for zoom info? What's where, where do you see the future of this company going? Yeah. So I think we're really early in all of our markets. That's the the best thing about zoom info is that the total addressable market. Well, there are a lot of best things. One of the best things (laughs) is that the total addressable market is really big and we're barely scratching the surface of it. And so you have a, we have this incredible opportunity to really take our solutions and our platform now, because what started as company and contact data has really been built into an end-to-end go-to-market platform. And we have the opportunity to take that to hundreds of thousands of organizations all across the globe. You know, we're just over a billion dollar revenue run rate today as a business. We see an opportunity to be much bigger than that. We sit in a hundred billion dollar total addressable market. And so there's just an endless amount of opportunity for us to execute against that. And so we just got to keep, keep marching forward. I thought uh, Chorus was a phenomenal acquisition. Yeah, thank you. For I those think... that aren't aware, it, it listens to your calls. It provides transcripts. It gives tons of insights. Oh, yeah. uh, it's an incredibly valuable tool. And clearly it's been uh, validated by you know Gong and others in the environment. So Yeah, that company, when we, we acquired Chorus a year ago, it was growing 100% year over year. And part of our strategy is to do acquisitions and fold them into the into the companies was growing 100% year over year. It's now growing close to 300% year over year. And again, it's because it's a huge market opportunity. It's integrated inside of Zoom Info. And so we can go to customers and say like, you know, you need conversation intelligence. The best place to integrate it is in the platform you're already using for go to market. Um, And that's really resonating. And so we'll continue to do M&A to grow the business um, and to to grow into different opportunities. but right now, you know, we went public, we did five acquisitions and we're pulling them all together today. Yeah. Yeah. I was, that's what I was going to say, you guys have done five acquisitions. Is there like a strategy behind, or is it just like the quality of the company is like that? That's what matters most. It's got to fit into like what sellers are using. So like if Chad was here and said, like, I never heard of Chorus, that mm. would be a problem because he is our buyer. Right? right. So you want him to really understand and leverage the types of tools that we, uh, that we acquire. And then you know, we have this huge data advantage. And so how do you use that data to make a software application better? That's how we're thinking about it. And so yeah. like for any entrepreneur, what is your asset and how do you leverage that as broadly as possible? Um, and for us, like the, the two real big assets in our business are data and our go-to-market motion. And so if you can find a software product that gets better with our data and all of our sellers can sell, 
in the go-to-market motion, that's a dream come true. Yeah, I think it added a lot of stickiness. Yeah, totally. Uh, let's let's change gears a little bit. So I asked Ashley what you might want to talk about in this podcast outside of our questions, of course. And she mentioned like your philanthropic efforts. So you're very successful. Uh, what does that mean to you in terms of giving back, and how do you how do you approach that? Yeah. So when we were growing up, my mom, she always gave back. Always like you would get those things in the mail where they gave you stamps with your address. My mom was like writing checks to give to these charities constantly. When I Googled my mom's name once when I was in college and I found that she had donated to my sister's college. And I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) You don't have any money. It's like, what are you doing? And they're doing well. Yeah. The colleges. Your college is doing fine. (laughs) And my mom used to always say like, whatever you give, you get 10 times back. And it was like, okay, it's just like a belief in karma, basically. Um, And when I graduated law school, when we graduated, I don't know why it stuck with me, but maybe it's because it's like, it's clever sounding. But the dean said, you know, like, go out into the world and do well and do good. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting statement, right? It's not just like, go be successful, but do good in the world. And so- what started at, at, at Zoom Info as um, Jessica and I, we adopted a local elementary school in an urban neighborhood. And we, at Christmas time, bought them all Christmas gifts. It was like 30 kids. It felt like an easy thing to do. It was also really rewarding. Like, right, yeah. we got to come in, give them all these gifts. The, the gifts, the kids were so happy. We did that. And the next year we're like, okay, we want to do that, but we'd love to do it a little bit bigger. And so someone connected us with a, uh, with a local elementary school district or school district. And they're like, they have a bunch of kids under the poverty level, a bunch of homeless kids. And they would love it for you to do something there. And so we, again, we did like uh, Christmas gifts for now it was like a hundred kids. And the next year we did a whole drive where we raised about $20,000 for the school district And then like gave a bunch of like in-kind gifts, jackets, socks. They have a resource center uh, that helps kids who are uh, homeless, who are below the poverty levels. They can come in and they can get basic stuff, socks, jackets. Sometimes their parents will come in and say like, hey, I'm going to miss rent this month. Is there anything you can do? And that organization can help them. And so over seven years, we grew it from that little elementary school to last year, we gave $2 million back into the communities we work with and a bunch of in-kind gifts as well. Um, And like, it's just like, you're doing the do good part of your responsibility. Like your responsibility is not just to do well. And you know, you you live in a community, we live in a community where on my way to work, I drive past these people. I drive past these schools and I come to my fancy office and my fancy car and I get to do fancy behind the computer work. You can't like have that success and not feel obligated to give back to the community you're in or you should feel obligated to give back to the community you're in. And I think what's what's been great about that program is everybody contributes. And so what happens is the whole company donates, everybody donates either like clothes or time or money. And then I double every, Jessica and I double everything that the company donates. Um, and so they know like their, their contribution goes even further. 
Um, and so it's just been a great opportunity for me to do the do good part and for the, and to role model really good behavior for the company. I think that that is so incredible. And I think that the most important thing that you said, um, coming from, like, for me, I'm the director of a, a children's cancer organization here in Las Vegas. It just feels so rewarding. It, it yeah. like, there is no better feeling like the other day I was about to get on a, a call with our like organization for our fundraiser that's in October. And I was like, Oh, I don't have time for this. And then I like checked myself. I was like, wait, hold on a second. I have time for all my other bullshit all day long. Yeah. Like there is definitely time for this because there's really nothing more important. So yeah, you feel an obligation. You, yeah. The fact yeah. that you and Jessica do that, I think is really awesome. And it's up to several millions, right? As I understand, yeah, we gave two million last year, just last year, in the community, in in the community, and then uh, every year, the year before that, we gave a million dollars. The year before that, we gave six hundred thousand dollars, and so it's grown every Amazing. year. Amazing, yeah, it's so really cool. such a massive impact. I do think um, that something that gets lost along the way is like when you're a leader, you're also a role model in everything you do, and yeah. like. You're a role model in the way you behave personally. You're a role model with your family. You're a role model with the way that you behave professionally. People are looking at you and they, they're taking signals. And so when I see people here go like, hey, you know, I'm actually like giving to this part of the community myself. Are you willing to help? I'm always like, that's amazing. Like they're really taking like, they're seeing what we're doing and then bringing it into their own lives. And so you have this great opportunity to be a great role model. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and that is more impactful than anything else, because the more people doing these things, the yep. more of an impact it has on the world. Yeah, totally. Torch multiplier. Um, so to do what you do, we have to, you, we know you have to be on point every day. You have got to have energy. You've got to have focus. You've got to have mental clarity. And one of the big things we talk about on this podcast is health and like how, how we take care of ourselves. And I know just from talking to Ashley and from hearing you on other podcasts, like you, I heard you say you work out every day. Like, what are the things that you do to take care of yourself? Yeah. So I do exercise just about every day. Um, but like at least five days a week, what kind of exercise? I do like 30 minutes of some kind of hit workout. So okay. like I'll do a class on like a Peloton. Me. Yeah. And I don't need to kill myself. I need 30 minutes to clear my head and like get some exercise in. Um, so I'll run kind of, you can think of that workout as running two miles and doing some set of like push-ups, sit-ups, squats, okay. uh, you know, one-legged lunges, something like that. Um, and I do that for 30 minutes. And, uh, then on a, a couple of times a week, I'll meditate for five minutes. Like I'm not like some super meditator <laughs> guy, but I'll get five minutes in. Um, are you doing this all at home, Henry? Are you doing this like, like, at the, is there a gym at the office? Like, how does this look? Yeah. So we do have gyms in all of our offices. Uh, so, uh, so I would do it at the gym. I do it at home today Okay. or I'm on the road again. So mm -hmm. I'm doing it on the road. I bring my gym clothes and I go to the hotel gym and I get 30 minutes in and like, I just traveled four nights and I got three night, three days in, uh, of exercise. I was pretty proud of that because it's been a while since I've traveled four nights for work. Yeah. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy. I think the key to that is I'm not doing that for any vanity reasons, right? Like I'm doing it strictly for my brain. 
And I know how I feel on days that I don't work out. And I know how I feel on days that I do work out. And I never like feeling the way I feel on days that I don't work out. And that's a lot of motivation to just get in and do your 30 minutes. Yeah. Especially when you know that you have big meetings to get to or whatever the case may be, like knowing how you feel afterwards. I say that all the time. I'm like, yeah, you might have a ton of resistance going into it. But yep. if you can connect to that feeling, like with your future self of what it feels like to yes. be done after yes. it's like hundred percent game changer. That is the game changer. If you can <laughs> connect to the, 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 your future self, that's, yeah. you never miss. You never miss it. Yeah. So you meditate sometimes. And then what is your strategy with food? Are you, I'm not very good on food. Um, I'm not very good on food. I haven't figured, I haven't, you know, there's the one part of my life I'm not disciplined in. I'm very really? disciplined everywhere else. I haven't figured out discipline. With <laughs> do you eat breakfast before you go to the office or are I you a breakfast not. skipper? I'm kind of a breakfast skipper, eat a light lunch, and then I eat a too big of a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just coming around to the point in my life where I'm like, you got to get disciplined around that. And so it's the one area that I haven't been terribly disciplined, um, but I recognize I'm going to need to. It's one thing that I find really fascinating is that intermittent for my husband too, like men are do so well with like intermittent fasting or skipping breakfast. Whereas like women, I find have a much harder time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. With it. So that's, that's really fascinating. Any, anything else in terms of like morning routine or, you know, do you cold plunges? Takeaways. People are fascinated with the, you know, like, the daily habits of the successful. So indulge us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't do uh, cold plunges, but I, I'm trying to get Jessica to add a cold plunge to our house because I do right. think it's beneficial. Yeah. Um, the, I think the bigger, the, the, the bigger piece here is like more on like how I get balance, like yeah. between family and work, which, uh, you know, just like probably anybody who's trying to be successful, I'm trying to be the best father, the best husband, and the best CEO I can possibly be. Yeah. And um, in order to do that, some one of those things is always giving on the decisions you're making. Yeah. And so you make a decision for work, you're stealing from your family. You make a decision for your family, you're stealing from work. And so like, I'm the one thing that... Uh, there are a couple of things that I've done to just build guardrails around that to make sure I'm never uh, taking away from key areas that I should be a good dad, a good husband, or a great CEO. So I wake up in the morning. I always hang out with my daughter in the morning when she wakes up. So I get like kind of 30 minutes with her when she wakes up. We talk about like she's uh, what how she, the school went the other day, what she's excited about, just dumb things. We play games. It's great. We just have 30 minutes together. I drink coffee. Then I go take a couple calls. I drop her off at school. She goes to school five minutes away from our house. So Jessica and I drop her off every morning. Uh, every morning I'm in town. And you then guys I take all, her together. That's we amazing. take her together. It's really I cool, actually. That. Yeah. And it's easy because it's five minutes away. So it's like yeah. all I got to do is not have a call between eight and eight thirty and I can pull it off. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, and then I'm always home before she goes to bed. I always get time with her before she goes to bed. So she goes to bed at seven. So that means I don't take any dinners. I don't do any happy hours when I'm in town, I work and I go home. That's it. So I don't, I get invited to all sorts of, you know, come to the Blazers game. No, like I'm going home to be with my family. Um, now I also recognize that I'm going to have to travel for work. 
And there's going to be times where I have to travel that I don't have any control over. I have to go meet that million dollar customer. I have to go to a board meeting. I have to go to investor meeting. And so I don't feel bad about those moments because I'm making that other commitment for when I'm here. So as long as when I'm here, I'm seeing Grace in the morning and I'm hanging out with her every night, then I never feel bad when travel is required because I know I've made the commitment in that other place. When this started, I was always feeling guilty in one place or the other, right? Like I'd be like, oh, I got to travel. I feel bad. Oh, there's a happy hour I'm going to go to. I have to go to that. I feel bad. And so when I put the guardrails up, I was like, okay, I'm making a real commitment to home and I'm going to make a real commitment to work. And I'm never going to feel guilty about either sides of that equation. That's worked for me. Um, that's worked for me really well. I love, I love that you are giving this advice to our audience because I think that we can get so distracted, whether it's with our phones. And so it's like, oh, you have that time with your daughter or like I have that yep. time with my sons in the morning. We could be on our phones, looking at emails, looking at social media, or with all of the things that you say, like you get invites to. It's like, I've gotten invited to three dinners this week. And it's like, right. there has to be a point where we say no and we prioritize what totally. our values are. And so for you, yep. it's like work and family. And it's like, if you know what your values are and you're putting those in place every single day with structure, there doesn't have yep. to be a guilt trip around. A hundred percent. You have to be int intentional about it. Yes. And everybody knows, like, no one's asking me to go to dinner with them anymore. It's like, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, it works. Um, and the people around me know. So I tell, like, my chief of staff and my executive assistant, like, don't even ask me. Because I know if you ask me, I'll find, you know, like, oh, I don't know. Okay, maybe. But do not ask me. I'm not doing I like that. I like yeah. that. I like it a lot. I think so what you guys are really saying is I should play less golf. <laughs> <laughs> golf is a big commitment. That's just like huge. a big commitment. Yeah. I it stopped playing golf. Commitment. So enjoy the next couple of years, Chad, because yeah, seriously, <laughs> <laughs> the, the tea times are dwindling. I'll, I'll say that much. I used to do like the very first tea time. So no one was up yet. I'd wake oh, up like at like 5 a.m. I'd race to the course and then I'd play like the I'd play the holes and I'd get home like right as people were waking up. I felt okay about that. Um, but it is a big commitment. It's the only way to do it. I think that that's yeah. the other thing too. Like we can drive this back into your company culture because it's like, if you're modeling that behavior, that family is important, they can take away with like for themselves that like they're allowed to have time with their family. There's 100%. a lot of company cultures out there that are like, I expect, I have a, a client who I'm thinking of right now, who like her boss expects her to answer her emails or her Slack messages at every hour of every day. And it's like, that leaves you no time yeah, that's pretty much with your family. Yeah. And so I think that that's really great that you're modeling that behavior for them as well. Yep. I, uh, the, the best compliment I can get, and I've gotten it a couple of times and it's meaningful is when people tell me like, guy texted me on Father's Day, um, a guy who is the CEO of a board I'm on. And he said, hey, happy Father's Day. My wife and I are starting to think about having kids and you're a great motivation for that because it's great to watch how you've carved out time for you and Grace and how important your family is as a part of, uh, as a part of your success. And it's like, that's a great, that's a great compliment. And like, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you're hard on yourself about these things. You're like, am I spending enough time? Was I there enough? Like, am I a good dad? There's this thing, like when I meditate every once in a while, a meditation instructor goes like, meet yourself where you are. 
just meet yourself where you are. And it's like, okay, why do I have to be so hard on myself about like being a great dad when like you like Grace thinks I'm a great dad. People around me think I'm a great dad. But when I'm thinking about all I'm thinking about is how can I be a better dad? Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes you just got to meet yourself where you are. You know, where you are is probably a pretty good place and you can just meet yourself there and be happy about it. We're our own greatest critics. That is. Yes, totally. Um, It's what makes us successful for what it's worth. No, it is. It's true. It's like when you're pushing yourself that way. Totally. Um, For you on the days that feel like challenges and you feel like unmotivated or like you don't want to get out of bed and deal with all the BS. What are the tools that you use to help yourself get there? Exercise. Okay. Um, And then there are places in this organization that will always bring me joy and people in this company who are doing incredible work all the time, even when things may not be going great as the whole organization. And I seek those people out and I just go have conversations with them. Tell me what you're working on. And I'm always, I always walk away from those conversations energized about the future of the company. Um, And so I seek out the people I know are doing really fantastic work at the company and I just want them to share it with me. Um, So that's, there's always great work happening at Zoom Info. And if all I do is focus on the stuff that's not going well, I never get those opportunities. So on days when it's a struggle, I go seek those out. So yeah, it's just like looking for the things that you have to be grateful for. Yeah, people exactly. are looking for, you know, tools and advice. I think that that's a really great one. Yeah. I, I read this book on things to be grateful for. Um, and I know we're running out of time, but I read this book this year called the happiness advantage. And oh. what the happiness advantage says it's written by a Harvard researcher. It was written in 2010. So it's not like even new, but what he uncovered is that the greatest advantage in business and productivity and engagement for yourself and your employees is being happy. And that kind of sounds like something that you can't wrap your arms around, but he basically lays it out that like happier employees, happier bosses drive higher engagement, higher productivity in their organizations, outperform their peers. Then he lays out like, how do you become happy? And it's like basic stuff, right? It's like uh, you exercise every day, you meditate, And then the big one is he talks about gratitude journaling, which is all the rage today, right? But the way he talked about it in 2010 is if you gratitude journal two to three minutes a day, every day uh, for 21 days, what happens and what you do to gratitude journal is you look back 24 hours and you think about key meaningful moments in your day that you're thankful for. And so for me, it'll be like, you know, Grace gave me a big kiss on the way into school that day and waved at me the whole way into her class. Or I had a great meeting with a customer who was really thankful for everything we did, whatever it is. You write it down, three minutes. And after 21 days, what happens is your brain actually creates a background scanning application that just does it in real time. You essentially train your brain to see those moments in real time and appreciate them in real time. And then that makes you a happier person and it drives all sorts of outsized incomes for your business. So what's amazing about that is like, we think all the time about like, how do I get a little bit more productive? How do I get a little bit better? Well, it turns out being happy creates the biggest advantage from a productivity perspective, from an engagement perspective. And the byproduct is you get to be happy. Yeah. Um, 
So I've been doing all of that stuff. It definitely works. Gratitude journaling is awesome and really impactful. Um, so it's a great book if you haven't read it. It's called The Happiness Advantage. I definitely am going to read that. I love that. I think that I've, I've heard that before where it's like your brain starts to actually like our brains like primarily are wired to like look out for fear. And, yes. and so I think that when you can kind of shift that a little bit to start to look out for the things that you have to be grateful for, it's like, what, what good could not come out of that? That's amazing. Yeah, totally. It's like, I need to take it on. I've been holding off for years. She's been trying to get me to do it. You have been doing your breath work though. I have, yeah. I'm, I'm getting there. I do <laughs> exercise, but that was a very thoughtful explanation. Yeah. And that's a great byproduct. Yeah. I think yeah. it changes everything, not it, just how you show up in your life, but it can have an impact, like you said, on your business. So. On your business. When you read that book, Chad, you'll come back and feel, it was like a, like, I'm, I haven't read a life-changing book in a long time. That was definitely a life-changing book. Amazing. He's writing it down. We'll put it in the show. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes for everyone. Awesome. Cool. Amazing, Henry. We know you're a busy guy. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank we really you do so appreciate much. it. We do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode. You can follow me on Instagram at Wellness by Kelly. And if you're new around here, you can sign up for the WBK seven day free trial where you can get access to all of my low impact workouts, blood sugar balancing, plant-based recipes, and guided meditations all available on wellnessbykelly.com and on the WBK app. Hey, thanks for listening. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also connect with us on social media at Wellness by Kelly. Drop us a DM for who you want to hear from.